Inner chaos is part of so many lives. When we go through it, we often try to hide it on the outside. Now I'm okay. I'm all good. But inside, there's a struggle. Why do I feel this way? Am I broken? Am I the only one feeling like this? When people connected with Jesus, they would grow to trust Him, pull down the mask they wore. Okay, well look, tonight we're going to be talking about the subject of depression, and uh, I've got to put a disclaimer out there right from the outset. I'm not a doctor, um, I don't claim to be a psychologist, and so therefore I'm not trying to speak from any sense of authority from that perspective. But what I do know is that uh, having been a pastor for 22, 23 years now, um, I've come across a lot of people who have struggled in this area of depression. And so when we talk about the subject matter of it's okay not to be okay, um, what I do know is that depression falls into that realm of what it's, not, it's okay not to be okay about. I want to um, begin by reading a, uh, a testimony of what depression feels like. Okay, it's not very long. I know there can be longer ones, of course. It's a big, big story. But I want to read this to us. A woman describes this as a pit, a high-energy vortex that keeps pulling you down and down. It's like one of those dreams where we keep falling and falling and there seems to be no end to it. And if this wasn't enough, slowly the light appears to dim and before we know it, we are surrounded with this dark, empty space filled with nothing but our own negativity and suffering. And then from the darkness, our own thoughts appear and they make it worse because we just want to, we just want to curl up and die. And somehow, rather than to make futile efforts of climbing back towards the little rays of light, we end up curling up in the soulless pit. That is how I would describe depression from my personal experience. So that is a very simple and short definition of what depression feels like. And it's the sort of thing that um, if you haven't experienced it, and I don't stand here tonight as someone who's experienced depression, it's very hard to get your head around. Because it's like anything in life, if you haven't experienced it, it's very hard to have, have empathy with it. And so what I want to talk about tonight is something that I haven't actually experienced myself, but I've walked closely with it. And I've walked with people who have experienced this. Depression is very common. In fact, it's one of the most diagnosed illnesses that a GP will come across. And uh, New Zealanders in particular have a very high rate of depression. Uh, we're not uh, exactly sure why, uh, but that's followed, of course, by our horrendous suicide statistics. And so we know that as a nation, this is something that's being brought out into the light, and more recently, people like John Kerwin, the, the All Blacks Sir John Kerwin now, for his work in this whole area, has highlighted for us just how significant it is. And I suppose I was like John Kerwin. Um, my attitude towards depression was just, I'll get over it, pull your socks up, you'll be right, uh, take a chill pill, take a concrete pill, harden up. And, uh, and so that sort of attitude never helped anybody. Uh, I've got to say, that was when I was younger, because I didn't know depression was such a significant event in a person's life. What I would like to say, though, is that um, is sadness isn't sickness. Our lives have this, have this rhythm 
where we have our ups and our downs. Okay, it's not an unusual experience for us to have ups and downs. If you uh, get a new job and it's all exciting, you've got an up. Uh, if you lose your job, it's a down. It's a little bit like that Vodafone ad where the young guy discovers love. He's feeling really happy and he's feeling really sad and uh, feeling really happy and really sad. Of course, it's when these spikes start to get um, a bit out of kilter, particularly these down ones, and we start to find ourselves staying in these curves and the downside of it for longer than usual, that's when we start to see the rhythm go out of sync. And this is when we have a right to actually question as to whether we're going in or through depression. Depression begins when your will no longer works. Depression begins when your will no longer works. Because every one of us has a will that says, you know what, I just got to buck up a little bit here. I'm feeling sad, but I can, I can go a little bit harder and I can get, get over this little, this little lump here or this little mountain that I've got in front of me. And, um, and often that's what happens. We go to ourselves, you know what, I can work this through. I can, I can overcome this. And we pull our socks up and we talk to somebody and we say, yes, I'm going to make it, and you do. But when your will no longer works, it means that when you talk to yourself about how you should climb that hill, how you should pull your socks up, and how you end up in a place where all you do now is end up condemning yourself because you haven't been able to reach the goals that you expected you should be able to reach, and you start to feel that life is caving in around you. And it may be that circumstances are changing around you. Maybe in the workplace you're finding yourself being uh, put under a lot of pressure by your boss. Or maybe you're the boss and you've got a lot of financial pressure. Maybe the sales aren't going so well. Maybe you've got clients who are disappointing you because they're not paying you on time. And other problems that just start to cave in around you. Uh, maybe you've got financial problems. It's the old story, isn't it? That the week seems to go longer than the pay in that week lasts. And so you end up with that financial pressure upon you. And so that can be a real challenge. Relationships, of course, are some of the most significant things that cause depression. Some people are raised in very, very difficult households, very confused, often dysfunctional households. And this occurs more often than we would like to actually admit within our nice New Zealand homes. Uh, then there are health changes. Uh, you get hit with something that is debilitating. Uh, it could be something that's physical. It could be something that's unseen. And these can cause changes within your rhythm of life. And all of a sudden, your hopes and your dreams for what you're wanting to achieve are cut short, and you can't actually see how it is that you're going to get around this immediate difficulty. Then, of course, there's busyness. We are spread too thin. Trying to do too much, too often, please too many people, and we end up running out. We just run out of steam. You know, I, as a kid, I always used to put plenty of Vegemite on my toast. And uh, I think when you compare that to busyness, it's sort of like your life is spread so thin that you can't see the Vegemite anymore. There's no taste. Life is just one commitment after another, and you end up feeling that you're just being overwhelmed. 
And one of the other problems that we face in today's society is social media. Social media is very intimidating. And I don't talk about bullying here. Like when I was a kid, I used to have to get on the bus to be bullied. Now I understand you can be bullied in the convenience of your own bedroom. You don't need to go somewhere to be bullied. Isn't that, isn't that encouraging for us to know that? You know, social con- uh, convenience these days, you can be bullied in your own home. Jokingly though, now I say social media actually presents everybody's life out there as one that's better than yours. Everybody else is living the life that you would like to live. Because the idea with social media, of course, is that we present our best life, don't we? Yeah? That's the whole idea of it, isn't it? We present our best life, and then when other people look at our lives, they say, gee, I wish I had their life. But you've just presented a false image of your life, and so you're masquerading what your real life is about, fooling people to think that your life is better than their life when you're really sitting at home going, I wish my life was the life that I was actually presenting, but it's not, and all we're doing is fooling each other with what the truth is. And so we can find ourselves inundated with these pressures. But the good thing that we need to remind ourselves about is that uh, depression puts you in some pretty good company. Some of the most famous artists, some of the world's greatest leaders have struggled with depression. There is not an industry, there is not a business, there is not a, a part of society that hasn't got somebody in it who has struggled with depression. The greatest leader of the 20th century, Sir Winston Churchill, called depression his black dog. He called it his black dog. And he went into huge bouts of depression. And yet, over time, he managed to work this through. So when we talk about depression, the first thing that you have to realize is that you're not alone. That you're in very good company. And the biggest challenge that you'll often face is actually talking to somebody about it, only to find that somebody else knows somebody else who struggled the same. And you're not isolated, you're not lonely, you're not separated, you're not distinct, you're not unique, you're not weird, you're not strange. And that's really, really important to know. In fact... um, Some of the biblical characters that we come across have had huge bouts of depression. And I want to name three tonight. Uh, Firstly, there's Job. What a tough life, eh? Poor old Job. Job talks to us not only about the difficulty of life, but it's about the nature and the character of God. Job is the oldest book in the Bible. You realize that? It's the oldest book in the Bible. We say, but isn't surely Genesis the oldest book in the Bible because it talks about in the beginning? Well, yes, but that was recorded after Job because Job actually wrestles with the most significant question that we have as human beings. And that is, where is the goodness of God when times are really, really tough? And so we read this story, we, we start off in the heavenly realms where the devil, Satan himself, is talking to the Lord saying, hey, I see your servant Job, he blesses you, he praises you, but let me just touch him and not take his life and I'm sure things are going to change. And so the Lord says, sure, 
You can test Job if you like. Just don't take his life. Well, as we know, he took everything. He took his children. He took his wealth. And then he took his health to the point of death. And Job was suffering, and it was an intense pain. And to make matters worse, the deacons came and visited him. And, and, and they gathered around him, and they said, Ah, you must have sin in your life for this to have happened. You must have sin in your life. And Job would say, No, but I, I haven't done anything wrong. And I'm, I'm in this place where I feel like I'm, 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 I've got a good relationship with God. And then Mrs. Job comes along and says, You know what, husband? Why don't you just curse God and die? Curse God and die. Well, none of these folks have been to Bethlehem Institute of, of uh, Counseling, you see. So um, putting a plug in here for our local ministry, the Bethlehem uh, Tertiary Institute, that is. And of course, Job gets redeemed because God is on his side, but it takes him through this real, real difficult time, a real tragedy in his life. And then he ultimately restores him back to a place of, uh, of uh, blessing again. Then there's David, King David. Psalm 51 talks to us about um, a time after David brought upon himself a whole lot of infliction, or affliction, I should say. And that is when he has committed adultery with Bathsheba, and he realizes that he's now committed sins, not only against his fellow man, but against God as well. And David writes these song, this, this psalm, he says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sins. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. And so Job is confessing. He's in a really sad and miserable place. Why? Because of sin in his life. So there's some questions that we have to ask when we, we look at David's life and we say, you know, am I feeling depressed and lonely and separated from God because there are things in my life that I need to repent from? Those are really valid questions that we need to ask ourselves. And then there's another character, a character who had a very exciting life, and his name was Elijah. And Elijah, in some sense, probably, probably reflects more the modern understanding of depression. You see, Elijah was a prophet, a man under God's own leadership, and he had this amazing encounter with the enemy of God's people, okay? Uh, here he was on Mount Carmel, and uh, the prophets of Baal gathered around and challenged him to a supernatural duel. Okay, the story is fantastic. And what happens is um, God asks um, Elijah to do this, uh, this, this setup where he says, right, I want you to bring in all these sacrificed animals, and then we're going to um, ask the prophets of Baal to call down fire from heaven to burn these sacrifices. And so Elijah invites all these prophets who are intimidating him. And they're there for hours and hours and hours 
going around, chanting, calling down fire from heaven from their gods. And Elijah just intimidates them. He looks at them and he goes, where's your God? Is he on holiday? That's what he says. Where's your God? Is he on holiday? And finally, they give up. And so now, this is Elijah's turn. What he does is he fills these trenches around the, around the sacrifices. He fills them with water, which is the last thing that you want when you want a fire to start, isn't it? But then, of course, God delivers them, and woof, fire from heaven comes down, totally wipes out these sacrifices, just absolutely cremates them. And then the prophets of Baal are put to the sword. And we're thinking to ourselves, this is outstanding. Wouldn't you like to be Elijah? This is just a full-on time here. This is exciting. Everything's gone well. God is glorified. The prophets of Baal have been smoked, literally. And what happens? Because of this intense time, and then one guy comes along, the king, King Ahab, who was a bad king, and he looks at Elijah and says, you're going to die. We're going to chase you down and you're going to die. And, and the strangest thing happens. Elijah believes him. He's just seen the power of God. He's just seen this exciting time. And yet he had this, this weakness. And as much as he believed this one man's authority over all the authority that God had already displayed. And the story says here, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. And when he came to Bathsheba in Judah, he left his servant there. And while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, he came to a bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. And he looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and he drank, and then he lay down again. And the story goes on that Elijah now takes himself off after having been rescued by God and puts himself in a place where he's fed for three years by the ravens. Okay, birds come along and deliver his meal. Okay, and I can guarantee it wasn't Domino's for breakfast, Burger King for lunch, and KFC for dinner. It was just crumbs that the birds had got from other tables. But God provided. But for this period of time, Elijah was um, stuck and he was depressed. And so what I'm saying here is that when we look at Scripture, we're in really good company when it is that we are... um, when we're feeling that life has got on top of us. And I just want to read one final part from a psalm, Psalm 40, which uh, tells us again about how the psalmist feels about being sad and blue. He said, I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. And many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in him. Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord. You see, this is a psalm that talks about the turnaround, that being, of being pulled out of the miry clay. Well, one of the things that I want to do now is um, just highlight what I think is a strategy 
for dealing with depression. But um, there are strategies that are positive and there are strategies that are negative. And I've seen people do some really, really um, understandable things when it comes to depression. But I need to explain them as being negative. Firstly, um, when we're feeling really blue, feeling really sad and down, we can self-medicate. Now, self-medication comes like this. It comes in the form of alcohol. It comes in the form of drugs, be them illicit or prescribed. Um, you can self-medicate with pornography because, like alcohol, it can give a quick buzz, just gets the endorphins going. Uh, you could self-medicate with illicit relationships. And I put flirting in that category as well. Anything that just sort of spices up life a little bit in an illegitimate way. Uh, it could be gambling. There's a real hit that comes when you, you think your horse is going to come in or the pokies are going around. Uh, it could also be, in our new social media area, can be gaming. Gaming can be a great place to be lost if you're feeling really blue. And these things, some have huge social effect upon you and others, and others get hurt. Some are not quite so much, but they certainly are illegitimate ways of, um, of uh, dealing with depression. And so what I want to do now is, is just write a list here of how we should and could deal with depression. Let's get that out of the way so that <coughs> excuse me, people can see. The first thing that you need to do is talk to someone. Okay? Talk to someone about the way you're feeling. You know, uh, the scriptures talk about us confessing our sins one to another. Now, sins is a, is a far end of this conversation, isn't it? We're not talking about sin here by talking about depression. But what I'm saying is that we need to be in community. We need to be in relationship with each other to the level that we can actually feel confident about disclosing what it is that we're feeling. Most of us, particularly men, will never talk about what we're feeling. We'll talk about what we're doing, what we're going to do, why we did it, when we're going to do it, and how we did it. But we won't talk about how we felt about when we did it, how we felt about when we didn't do it, how we felt about when we were thinking about doing it, or how we felt about it when it didn't happen, or when it never happened, and how others felt about us feeling about it. <laughs> so you have to talk to someone, and what I'm talking about here is your feelings, okay? Now, it's, um, it's one of these significant challenges that men face. And as much as... Um, Men always feel a bit awkward talking about their feelings. You know, wife will ask you the question, how are you feeling? And you go, what's that? You know, it's a little bit like when they say to you, what are you thinking? And you go, nothing. So for a woman, they don't understand that. There is no such thing as a nothing. For men, there is a nothing place in their head. Are you with me, men? There's a nothing place, eh? Hey? It's like, you're right with me. Okay. It's like, what were you thinking? Thinking. Where were you? Nowhere. 
Well, you couldn't have been nowhere. You must have been thinking about something. No, honestly, I was thinking about nothing. Now I'm thinking about something, but I'm not so sure what I was thinking about before. And so that's really important for men to break out of this, okay? And if you're struggling to raise something that you're struggling with, with a friend, go and see somebody. Be really brave. Go and see your GP and talk to them about how you're feeling. Go and see uh, somebody who's a counsellor and say, look, this is how you do it. You say, look, I, I know there's nothing wrong with me and I don't really need to be here, but I just felt sorry for you and you thought you should earn some of my money. So I thought you could practice on me because there's nothing wrong with me. Okay, men, that's how you start that conversation, all right? There's a few hints for the boys tonight. Now, you like that? All right. Okay. Um, you need to identify causes, okay? Some of the things that will cause depression are self-explanatory, okay? You might have had death in the family. And... Um, that, of course, is going to make you sad. Sadness isn't sickness. I've said this before. It's part of this rhythm of life. But there is a sadness that overwhelms and moves us further down than we actually know how to handle. And that's when you need to, A, talk to somebody and identify the causes. At a level, even at a minimum, you need to have your feelings of sadness normalized. When you say to people, I can't stop crying. It's been like three or four months since this happened, and I just can't stop crying. And somebody will say to you, yeah, that's normal. But I don't see other people doing this. No, because they don't want to tell you that that's what they're experiencing. Because everybody thinks it's not normal to cry. Yet God made us with this ability to weep. And... and and, and the truth is that the grief cycle that we go through has no pattern to it at all. You can walk down the street months after an event that has been uh, cataclysmic in your life and you can just start crying and you go, where did that come from? I must be going crazy. No, that's perfectly normal. Okay? Now, if you're walking down the street and you start weeping because the warriors have lost again? That might be a little bit borderline. But they won tonight, so you'll be happy to know that. Yeah, a surprise. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. Okay. Um, evaluate your lifestyle. You know, life has a funny way of catching up and creeping up on you. If you look at the life that you're leading now and you compare it to where you were 12 months ago, 18 months ago, three years ago, things have a way of slowly reaching crisis point without you even realizing it. And I know that I'm, personally, I'm really susceptible to this. Uh, all I have to do is have, um, you know, a challenging scenario that I'm working with with a family, um, it might be a funeral, a uh, couple of uh, big meetings that I'm having to wrestle with. I've got a, another national role outside of this. 
And all of a sudden, I look at my diary and I'm going, man, I have to be really, really careful. I have to be very, very careful. Because in this period of time here, these two or three weeks, I'm going to fry if I don't get some sleep, eat well, exercise well, pray well, and, and make sure that I cover all my bases. Otherwise, this, this next few weeks is going to take me out. So you've got to evaluate your lifestyle and determine whether things are changing, whether you're getting, um, uh, getting busy. But the other thing that you also want to ask yourself is, when you look at your lifestyle, you say, you've got to ask yourself, am I doing what I'm made to do? Am I doing what I'm made to do? Turn to the person next to you and say, are you doing what you're made to do? Are you doing what you're made to do? This, this is one of the biggest questions. This is one of the biggest questions that you'll ever ask yourself. And often we don't want to ask it because it's scary. When you look in the mirror and you say, you know what? I just always wanted to drive a truck. Okay? But what are you doing being the Prime Minister of New Zealand? So that's why John Key finished. <laughs> no, no, it's not true. <laughs> no, it's not true. But we have to ask ourselves, are we in the right place, doing the right thing with our lives in this time and season? Um, I think we've got to own what it is that we're made to do and made to be. That's really, really important, isn't it? Otherwise, we'll end up living somebody else's life, a life that's been projected upon us by uh, friends or family, and uh, we end up in a place where we're resentful because we're doing a daily grind that we're not actually wired to do, okay? So lifestyle could be too busy or you could be doing the wrong thing. And uh, again, coming back to men, I can really only talk about men's experiences because I am one, a man, it is. And, um, and uh, any call upon um, uh, to put myself into a different category, I'm not going to. Um, but men have this crisis time. And um, keep cutting out, do I? Okay. Crisis. Okay, men have a what they call a midlife crisis. It doesn't mean you, you don't have to have one, okay? You're not missing out if you don't have a midlife crisis. All right, but um, I know for myself when I was 25, I saw a book in the Christian library called Men in Midlife Crisis. And I thought, I want to get that book and I'm going to read it now. So then I know what to expect when I hit my middle years as to what the crisis will look like. So that if I can see the signs of the crisis coming, I always know what to expect and therefore I could avoid the crisis. Well, I think the book helped, but I still had my own challenges. I can remember it took me two years to turn 40. Not one year, two. Because it just seemed like a huge shift in age. When you hit 50, your own mortality starts to hit you. You go, wow, i got more years in the rear vision mirror than I have in the front of the windscreen. Yeah? And uh, those of you under the age of 40 don't understand this. 
And when you wake up in the morning, you go, I might have another day. Praise the Lord. You know? So you get out of bed and away you go and you do the best you can. You see, we are all going to be hit with different challenges. That's how we actually face up to them. Okay, another one that, um, that we need to look at with respect to depression is um, resolving conflict. Low or medium conflict going on in your life will drain the life out of you. And this can be at work. This can be in your life with your children. This could be with a neighbor. could be with parents. And it doesn't matter how old you are. If you've got parents, it, that conflict can still be there. And so how you resolve this conflict is going to have a huge impact upon your well-being. Um, a, a, a favorite um, pastor of mine, Bill Hybels, talks about energy bursts throughout a day. He said, the average person is good for three to four really good bursts of energy every day. So you can task yourself with three or four significant projects. But he said, if you leave home in the morning and you've had a big barney with your teenage kids or maybe with your spouse, he said, you're already two energy bursts down before you get in the car to go to work. And so resolving conflict is a really important way of uh, removing the, uh, the things that can lead to depression. Another way of overcoming depression is embrace truth. I'll explain this in a minute. And this is where I think Christians have a huge advantage. You see, if I'm not a Christian and I go out at night like I did two nights ago, look up to the stars and I see the stars and then I'm reminded that there are more stars than there are grains of sand on every seashore and every desert in the world. All right? And each one of those stars is a sun. And each of those suns has in itself an entire galaxy of planets, a solar system just like ours. You start to recognize the magnitude of the, of the universe that we are part of. And so therefore, it's very easy to go down the track of going, I am nothing. In fact, the evolutionists tell me that biologically I crawled out of a swamp. I have no more value than a piece of algae floating in the bottom of a pond. It's very easy to go down that track and convince yourself that you actually have very, very limited value. And this doesn't matter whether you've, you've got... Um, a well-paid job or a loving family or a, um, or a great education or live in a fantastic place like, like New Zealand. But um, you can end up in this place where you feel that you're not worthy and uh, you just life has no reason or no purpose. But as a Christian, let me just read to you for a moment. 
from Ephesians chapter 1, what it says that Christ has done for us. It says that um, we have been blessed in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world, before the creation of the world, before all those stars, to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished upon us. And with all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. Now, that definition of who I am sounds a little bit better than pond swamp, doesn't it? So when I say embrace truth, embrace truth about who you are, the value that you have. And um, I can remember with youth groups, we would do this thing. It sounds kind of um, uh, a little bit weird, but um, we used to sit around in groups and you would write on a piece of paper what you liked about somebody, and then that would get handed around the group. You ever done that before? Yeah? Yeah? You know what I'm talking about? I think this is one of those simple things that we need to do for each other on an ongoing basis. We need somebody in our life who's our cheerleader who says, you know what, I really appreciate you. You know what, I really love you. You know what, I love the way you do this. I love the way you do that. It's so vitally important, isn't it, to have people around you like that. And we can all be that person to others. And that is not telling lies about each other, but um, embracing the truth. Okay. And finally, and this is one I want to spend a few moments on. This is, like I say, this is not an exhaustive list. But um, this is another one which I think Christians have struggled with. Go to the doctor. Many Christians look at feeling sad or blue as a failure in their faith. It's like, well, Christ died for me. He rose from the grave for me. I should be the happiest person in the whole world. But I feel like going literally jumping off a cliff. So I better not go to the doctor because that would be a confession that is negative. There would be an admission that my faith is failing. Well, let me just tell you this. Depression is largely about an error that has occurred or is occurring within your brain. Serotonin is one of the big factors that we're talking about here. It's a chemical that um, you can become depleted from when you're anxious, when you're busy, when you're under stress, and all these different things that uh, we mentioned here tonight. And it has a physical impact upon your, your brain. 
And so therefore, if you're looking for a way through depression, one of the ways can be that God gives you a doctor to help you through. You've got one. That's right. Yeah, well, Marshall will be writing scripts at the end of the night. <laughs> yeah, free scripts. That's right. Yeah. And um, look, I, I know Marshall would back me up on this. But um, the thing is that if you're in a pit, you need a hand out of the pit, don't you? You know, if you're in a pit, you don't want someone to come along to you and go, jump. Come on. Jump. Pray. Pray more. Read your Bible more. Believe it. Hold on, I'll get another five people and we'll all chant together, jump, jump, jump now. Because that is what can happen. Now, I'm not denying God's ability to bring somebody out of a difficult space. But when you are depressed, you are medically and psychologically in a place where you need others to help you out. And medication, in some cases, can be the answer to that. It gets you out of the pit, and then it gets you back into the road of recovery when you can stop then, having been to the doctor, you can come back and you can start to put some of these things in place by evaluating and re-evaluating where your life is. And then you can start, you have the strength and the will to be able to do these things. And in time, you can go off medication if you need to. And I say that as somebody who has seen literally dozens and dozens of people, fine, well-meaning Christian folks who have needed a hand. You see, we live in a world that calls you to your limit. We live in a world that calls you to your limit. And you know how you find out where your limit is? When you hit the wall. And you go, smack. And you go, ouch, that hurts. Oops, that's broken. How am I going to get right? And so there are times when we do literally need to go to the doctor. And um, I'm a great believer that um, uh, a Christian, especially a Christian GP, um, putting plugs in here, I'm on commission now, Marshall. Um, <laughs> free scripts, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm a great believer that with prayer and with some medication, um, you can get through. In saying that, I also am fully conscious of the fact that there are people who, because of the state they're in, because of the condition that they've become into, uh, they come into, that medication might be a long-term process. It's, uh, it's, not, it's not simple. It's way more complicated than I can describe to you now and way more complicated than I have the skill to do. But what I do want to say is that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And, um, you know, the problem that we've had is that we haven't seen our brain as a part of our our, 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 our biological makeup in the same way as anything else. If I um, had a broken leg and somebody just said, just keep walking, it'll come right, well, that would be bad advice, wouldn't it? So when we've got 
a mind that's not working as well as it should, we need to remind ourselves that this too can be fixed. And there are many ways in which God can bring that about. Okay? Because the simple truth is this. I've taken too many funerals already or have attended too many funerals of people who have died from mental illness, taken their own life. And I think a trip to the doctor might be the last resort, but it's something we need to own as a Christian community, that this is amongst us, that this shouldn't be feared. We can bring it out of the darkness into the light, and we can learn to live with this as a Christian community as something that we can own and collectively can bring into a healing place. Let me pray. Why don't you stand? God, when we talk about it's okay not to be okay, there are things that as Christians we put into the it's not okay box. And then we do wonder if they are okay. And we see mental illness and we see depression as one of those things we're not quite sure what to do with. But Lord, as we see even in your word, through circumstances and just through the makeup of a personality, there are situations that develop, Lord, where people are struggling to get out of bed in the morning. And these are our brothers and sisters people whom you've died for, people whom we love here on earth and whom we're going to spend eternity with. And God, I just want to pray for people now who, who feel that they're in that pit, in that hole, and they feel that their will no longer works. I just want to pray, Father, that there is no condemnation. That as your word describes, even we heard it this morning, that your yoke is easy, that your burden is light. And that you create a pathway, Lord, for people to be able to speak to the right people in trust and confidence, to have prayer, to read scripture, to build truth into their lives of whom they are, to lay down busyness, to rebuke the influence of social media that pours lies into our lives. And so many different things, Lord, that just surround us, be it conflict in our homes, be it a sense of failure. Lord, we thank you that you are the God of the resurrection, that overcoming the cross, the pain and the suffering that you endured, overcoming death, you renewed life. And so, Father, however it comes, we just want to celebrate that restoration that you bring into our lives because you're a good God in the midst of us. And where there is darkness, you bring light. Where there is hopelessness, you bring life. Where there's failure, you bring second chances. And so, Father, I just thank you that here in this place tonight, we declare your lordship over all parts of our lives. For Jesus' glory, we pray. Everyone said, Amen. Amen. God bless you.